Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome to another thrilling ride of life. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. Welcome once again. And this week, as we always do, have a special guest. And this is going to be Chris Connelly, one-time member of Finney Tribe, also the Revolting Cox Ministry and about a million other bands. I spoke to him recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that kind of groovy stuff. So I've got that interview that I'll break up into three or four little easy to digest segments. But before we have quality chat, I think we should have some music. This is going to be a very early band that he was in, Finney Tribe, all the way from Scotland. And this is your favourite and mine. This is Detestimony.
We do like those bells. And percussion. That was Finney Tribe. And that was the classic track titled Detestimony that came out in the mid-80s. It was a JFK moment when John Peel played it. And we loved it. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is Chris Connelly, who I spoke to a few months ago, all the way from Chicago, to find out about his life in music. So I've got that interview broken up into probably four segments for your enjoyment, alongside the usual um, quality music, indeed. So, um, yes, we'll be playing songs from his incredible back catalogue. But before we have any more music and chat, I think we should do some admin. We love the admin here. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to to the at C86show. I will be there. And it is always a thrilling. And also, um, I've archived all the shows as well because I've been doing them for over two years and I've always had a special guest. So you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. I mean, four different uh, platforms that you can find. Why wait? Anyway, I've been doing these for over two and a half years. So I've probably got 150, 200 um, special guests. So any indie band you ever wanted to hear, they're there. But anyway, I think we should play another track.
Splendid stuff. That was Chris, I was going to say Chris Connelly with um, a solo album that he pulled out in 2018. If you're making notes, and that was the title track titled um, Bloodhounds. Indeed. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. This is going to be the first part of my interview with Chris, where I began by asking him that exciting question that I love to kick it off with. The early years, how it all began. And this was Chris's answer. Take it away, Chris. You know, um, it, it started a very long time ago. I mean, I'm talking like, I'd say Ground Zero was probably 1980. Um, but Prior to that, the sort of years, 76 to 80, me and Andy, who was in Finney Tribe, we used to play together. Uh, we tried things. We're very young. But, you know, I was a, a really um, tireless record collector at that age. And um, I was opening my ears up to a lot of stuff. John Peel had a lot to do with that. And this is pre-punk. And I wasn't really very happy with the music that I that was available to me so that's when the John Peel show came in handy because I was introduced to stuff that was very left of center and 1980 I suppose was when it dawned on me and my friends that we could do it by ourselves and start a band there was enough going on and enough uh cassette only releases you know mm. and um flexi discs and and what have you and xeroxed fanzines going around i mean there was tons and they were really quite easy to find whether it was in the back pages of nme or sounds or uh in one of the many record shops that were around edinburgh at the time and i used to buy cassette only releases just because the I, I was pretty sure it was going to be great. And uh, I was usually right. It was usually very experimental and very weird and very cool. And, you know, that's kind of how my Finney tribe started. We started as a three piece without a drummer and we were just, we had a drum machine and we were just trying to sort of put together our own <laughs> little reality, if you like. Yeah. And we added a drummer. And we added other people and became a six piece quite quickly. And that's when we really started to get serious. And we were very serious in a sense and very silly in another sense. You know, um, We were all still in secondary school at the time. And uh, we all smoked a lot of hash and uh, we'd jam and come up with riffs and things like that. And we were all really into wire and uh, public image and bands like that, you know, they were they were things that were really exciting to us at the time. Yes, because obviously, uh, I was just going to say, you know, obviously, you know, you've come from, is Edinburgh you were brought up, so or yes. lived. So there was a, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, there was a huge music scene sort of bubbling away there as well, wasn't there? And you'd also had those bands that, I don't know if they influenced you at all, but people like the Skids that obviously sort of were sort of, you know, had had sort of like had a lot of chart success. So with that kind of slightly post-punk world that sort of went into um, big country. And before that, obviously, 
we had dear old Bass City Rollers. I'm, I'm sure you weren't just listening to Scottish bands, but, you know, I was at that age where, you know, I was on the school bus and you'd have all this kind of music blaring out. And then my first kind of album and single, my first love was David Bowie when I heard Space Oddity. Me too. Um, and, <laughs> I, and I went and bought the seven inch and was like amazed because the B-side had changes and Velvet Goldmine on the on this same uh-huh. side. And I thought, wow, B-sides are really good. And obviously it went down. <laughs> they, they didn't keep that standard going for long. But, you know, that was obviously my moment and, and my my first love and and continued right through so obviously that top of the pops world where you know you're watching everything so I missed punk because I was a bit too young for it it was only later on that I got it so yeah I was I suppose it was the 80s indie scene with John Peel and the NME on a Wednesday that that I became kind of much more obsessed with and sort of found it a bit more interesting because I had been influenced by my older brother who was seven years older than me who was who gave me all those prog rock albums and you know yes Genesis and and you yes. know, then the, and within that was Sergeant Pepper and also Goodbye yeah. Yellow Brick Road by Elton John. So I got this kind of from a ten to thirteen that was obsessed with all this kind of these records. It you didn't have any cultural significance then because they they were quite new still. But it was kind of I suppose I found myself you know, musically, um, more in the 80s when when I kind of discovered things for my, you know, that, that were kind of both happening and also things that I kind of went, well, I am the fly in the ointment by why I was like, that's a bit interesting, <laughs> you know, because on one side you had that kind of fantastic mainstream sound of Trevor Horn, which I couldn't relate to and, and people going back, going to clubs and stuff, which I couldn't relate to. And then you had all these kind of slightly weird and angsty st- things, which were a bit weird, I suppose. Well, no, they weren't weird, but I just could relate to them more than, than you know, what was going on with new, the new romantic scene. Of course. I mean, I think uh, the epiphany for us was, you know, again, realising that there were there were people around doing not necessarily a similar thing, but being able to do it yourself. And, you know, it was a very short space of time until what you're talking about kind of took over. Um, the indie rock scene of the eighties, a lot of these people jumped ships and wanted to go to the major label scene. So all of a sudden you had, uh, you know, in the wake of things like Spandau Ballet, you had a lot of white soul bands and there was tons of them in Scotland as well and we couldn't relate to that. And all of a sudden we felt really like outsiders and the Finney tribe have always been outsiders. Um, we There was a short, sweet moment there where there was a band in Edinburgh called The Visitors and there was also a band in Edinburgh called Explore Your Heart. And we were kindred spirits. But these, these bands broke up and... Uh, we were kind of left high and dry in a way, and we just plundered on and changed our sound in an un- uncompromising way to suit us. And, you know, it didn't get us any kind of an audience, but we kept doing it anyway. And um, <clears throat> we had people who liked us, and we loved what we did, and there was, you know, there was nothing much to be done. We just uh, kept going. Um, until the band, you know, eventually fractured. Um, uh, But Edinburgh was at one point, I think, sort of 1979 to 1980. That's what the inspiration was, you know, when bands like The Simple Minds were first starting out. There was a lot of gigs to go to. But I was always really interested in creating myself, and I still am like having that blank canvas in front of you. And I think that 
the lessons I learned with the Finney tribe with these guys when we started playing together are the lessons that have lasted me a lifetime about how to communicate with people, sometimes without words, uh, with with what you're doing create creatively, you know. Yes. Well, also, and, and you know, because you did have that moment, which, you know, probably is your, you know, the testimony. So can you remember much about when you were putting that particular track together? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, the, a great turning point for us. The sort of the thing that changed everything for us was when we got a sampling keyboard. Now, John Vick from the band, who's still in the band, he was the tech genius in the band, and he still is. And he built an echo unit for us. I mean, he built it, right, with diodes and wires and stuff. He's very clever. And, um, you know, that also had sort of very primitive sampling capabilities, so we were introduced to that. We wanted an emulator so badly, of course. Everybody did, uh, but no one could afford it. Um, so we bought uh, an Ensonic Mirage keyboard, not to get too dorky or technical with you, but that was kind of an affordable sampling keyboard. That changed everything for us. So um, Philip's flatmate had a, a quarter-inch tape reel of church bells, and one of the first things we did with it was we sampled a bell from this quarter-inch reel, and I don't remember who played the melody. It was either me or John or Philip. We played the da 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 And that's the genesis of the testimony. And when it started, it wasn't um, a, a dance track. It was more experimental than that. But at that time, uh, we're, we're talking like 1986, there was a lot of like dance music was becoming very compelling to us. There was bands like The Age of Chance and, um, I don't know, Test Department had started using more dance rhythms, Cabaret Voltaire, and it was getting in the charts and stuff as well. And we liked to dance. We liked to go out dancing. So eventually we sort of thought, well, what if we were to add a sort of dance beat to this bell thing and what would happen? And D-Testimony is actually edited down from a 15-minute piece of music. I mean, so pompous and pretentious, but we managed to edit down um, a four-minute section, which became the single, and that was the thing that became, you know, the testimony that uh, is the. I, I want to say that everybody knows and loves, but not everybody knows and loves. <laughs> it. A few people know and love it. <laughs> That's nice. And that's enough. Anyway. The early, uh, yes, chatting about Finney Tribe and that classic track, The Testimony. Um, this is David Eastall. I think we should break that up and have some more music. This is going to be another um, outfit that Chris was in. I mean, he was in a lot, so it's, um, give, me a, give me credit to try and keep uh, track of all his musical adventures. This is going to be a track titled Mania from the Combo Murder Incorporated. I think you'll like it.
we do like percussion on this show. Anyway, that was um, a track titled Mania from the Combo Murder Incorporated. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Chris Connelly. Um, where we were talking about the second phase of his musical adventure. What happened after Finney Tribe? Chris, let us into that secret now. Yeah, I mean, and I haven't stopped since. And it's nothing to do with uh, a pursuit of any kind of success. It's just, you know, it's just like, you know, I always tell interviewers, well, you know, Francis Bacon painted until he dropped. He was in his 90s. He must, I mean, he was very successful, but at the same time, he must have felt compelled to create what he was creating. And I keep meaning to take a break, but I keep meeting people and I just find other artists to be very inspiring. And so I'll meet someone. I recently met a visual artist who we struck up a friendship and we got talking and then I just read about some of the things he'd done and I was like, oh, wow, that's that's great. He did that. I've, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And I just get all worked up and start working on a new project. It's just about trying to bend the shapes and find the words and do something new. It's always that blank canvas for me. Yeah. And, and you don't need anything to do it, right? I mean... If, if you have been and done what I've done and realized that being so completely unsuccessful financially in music, but for some reason you keep going, you must be doing something right. And also you don't need any money to do it. You know, if you have nothing and I've been there, you know, I've been there when I've been like, not destitute, but really uh, not much going on, hmm. no money, nothing. But I still have my guitar and I still have ideas and I still have a notebook and I still have a pen. And then eventually things change and I can make a record and blah, blah, blah. And now I have the sort of means to do all that stuff at home. Yes. It didn't cost a lot of money. And there's no reason if I feel like sort of creating something at four in the morning, I can go down there and do it. It's brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely. So, look, you, you sort of after the Finney tribe experience, did was that a big wrench kind of deciding to leave leave that sort of kind of oh, music? Oh, gosh, yes, it was. And, you know, I'll tell you what, I still, a big part of me regrets it to this day, but I have to sort of balance out, well, do you regret it because it's a brilliant memory of when you were 19 and 20 years old free and having the time of your life or do, you know why do you regret it it's a sort of melancholy and I learned so much with these guys and I learned so much like I said earlier in the interview about how to play with people how to how to create a musical language with people and how to have dynamics and it was a short space of time, relatively speaking, but I took so much for, from it. It was like, you know, it's like an old girlfriend or something that you really, really miss. And, you know, if, if everybody in the band said, let's do a record together, then, you know, I'd be there. It would be such a dream come true for me, but I know that probably won't happen. Um, but I'd sure be interested in trying, um, yeah, it's it was it was a hard thing to do, but at the time, we had we had met an impasse, 
you know, it was a combination of um, uh, not having any sort of support where we lived in Edinburgh. We couldn't really get anyone to come and see us. And there was, you know, there were six of us. It was a lot of gear to carry around. There's a lot of money to go to gigs. We didn't get paid anything. And we were taking an awful long time to write material. And I think that was just because we were in a bit of a slump. We'd had a really good fertile period. And then, you know, it was fallow. But we were young. We were, you know, we're young hotheads, speaking for myself. It's like, oh, come on, come on, come on. And also I had met, at that point, I'd met Al Jurgensen from Ministry and the Revolting Cocks. And I was kind of like, ooh, that sounds like fun. I want to do that. It sounded like the new, exciting, uber death, death disco sound. And, you know, uh, off I went to America to do that. And um, I kind of wanted to go and try and do both. But, you know, after a while, realistically, it's like, no, we can't. You can't do both. You know, you have to pick a side. You have to pick a, uh, what you're going to do. So I picked uh, Chicago. Yes. And did you, I mean, did it feel kind of amazing one day, you know, being in Edinburgh and next in Chicago going, my God, this is a, a completely different vibe, different climate, different, you know, group of people? Different culture, yeah. I mean, it was, I, you know, I, I moved and uh, the culture I joined, the Wax Tracks culture, was a really good culture for me to be a part of. It was very supportive of what I did, very supportive. And, um, I met a lot of new friends who were all very supportive of me, like helping me, you know, find a place to live, and, you know, and uh, the record company Wax Tracks also really looked after me. So it, it was good. I was not I was very sheltered from the realities of America, you know, for a very long time. Yeah, because um, it's obviously during the sort of the the, 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 the mid eighties when Reaganomics was yes. kind of, and obviously we had Thatcherism and the Red Wedge movement, and lots of we just had the miners' strike, and obviously the Falklands. So obviously things were were getting quite of quite heated, and and then you know that that sort of musical period in in the UK. I mean, obviously you had the charts, but then you had indie, then you had the dance, then you had grunge. I mean, this is kind of simplified, really. But you know, and then Britpop. Whereas America, you were getting this kind of underbelly of kind of, I suppose, Sonic Youth and the Butthole Surfers were starting to uh -huh. sort of appear as well. And so the Revolting Cocks again had that kind of kind of industrial kind of. Um, harshness as well as as kind of um yes slightly terrifying sort of right right and i mean i was dropped straight into it and it was kind of on one side the revolting cox was kind of eurocentric it <clears throat> it had started in belgium and on the other side it was kind of uh uh a reflection of and um you know a kind of uh how would you say it a reflection of american the most base American culture, right? Like the dumbest things about America reflected in this band. Um, and that for me was very strange. And I think it was a good thing for the band because I had such fresh eyes. I didn't know what American culture was short of Starsky and Hutch or whatever. And, uh, you know, my take on it was everything is so new and so stupid. Wow, this is great. You know, um, it was, and it still is, to be honest with you, every day I'm kind of, my mind is blown by the stupidity. 
<laughs> of, of what it is over here. Yes, an interesting time. Anyway, that's the second part of my interview with Chris Connelly talking about life post Finney Tribe and what's happening now. Anyway, I think we should have some more music. This um, is going to be taken from an album way back when, 1991. The album was titled Whiplash Boy Child and this was, or is, Stowaway. Another classic. Uh uh-huh. 
There you go, that's Chris Chris Connelly and the track title Stowaway that came from his 1991 album Whiplash Boy Child. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me without sounding too desperate, you can via um, Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show. And as I said earlier, hopefully you were paying attention. Um, All the shows have been archived and you can find them on Spotify, Mixcloud, Podbean and um, iTunes. Check it out. It might just change your life. Anyway, this is going to be the third part of my interview with Chris. Um, because we were getting on incredibly well, and which was nice. Um, and this is what the uh, what happens coping with show business, and also that sort of period of going from one band to another, e.g. the um, Finney Tribe to the Revolting Cox. And this was his answer. Chris, we're all waiting. Well, you know, I mean, the Finney Tribe, we were so, we were so arty. But at the same time, a lot of the sort of sonic direction of the Finney Tribe had similarities with the revolting cogs and one of the things that's good to know is that there were members of the revolting cogs who very very level-headed human beings okay it wasn't all crazy the public perception of it was crazy and uh that's the image that was um you know, we didn't try to hide it and the media grabbed it and ran with it. And we were like, okay, that's fine. But it wasn't that crazy, to be honest with you. Um, there are some great stories, but no no better than like, you know, um, any stories from any other bands at the time. Like who's, uh, my, I, I used to be friendly with, um, oh gosh, I can't remember his name. Their album was called Eight-Legged Groove Machine. What was what was their name again? Do you remember? Oh, was it the Soup Dragons? No. Not the Soup Dragons. No, it was, they were an English band. Uh, Miles is the singer's name. He used to be a friend of mine. Oh, the Wonder Stuff. Yeah, the Wonder Stuff. So they were crazy as well. <laughs> they were just as crazy as us. And so were, you know, so were the Mary Chain. And, uh, you know, um, we just didn't, try to appear normal at any point <laughs> and our reputation preceded us and we didn't try to um disguise that and we liked the fact that the media, oh my god shock rock revolting cogs and we're like okay if you like um so we kind of just went with it and it was fun um and you know same same goes for ministry as well um uh, but yes, there was a lot of hedonism involved, uh, but I'd say no more than anyone else. Uh, guys have to own up. <laughs> <laughs> but did you, I mean, sort of switching between, you know, like going from so many, you know, different dynamics and different bands, well, different bands, you know, it, it takes a lot because there's a couple of artists I've always admired, obviously David Bowie and sort of thinking, God, you know, he he was extraordinary. He did 10 albums in in one decade in the 70s and then he kept reinventing himself and and other people like Lemmy from Motorhead just like I'm going to be in rock and roll and that's all there is to it there is no plan b so I've always admired people like that because often often people do have the sort of oops actually I'm going to have a plan b whereas a few people and there aren't a lot who just will stick with it and you've obviously one of those people who just said right I'm going to stick with this kind of journey so kind of moving into ministry as well must have also been kind of an interesting experience yeah, it definitely was. Um, 
you know, I learned a lot uh, at that stage. Um, uh, certainly, I learned a lot musically that stood me in good stead because the music was a lot harder than it appeared to be. So when I learned that stuff and, you know, it was an endurance test, you know, a lot of that stuff. It was like being in the studio round the clock for a long, long time. There was nothing particularly pleasurable about doing that stuff but there were moments of um extreme put it this way sometimes when you're playing live with ministry everything just clicked and you realized why you were doing what you were doing it just became really electric and really amazing and powerful and uh there were certain um, elements that we worked with, I think, uh, sonically that just made us louder than anyone else and more interesting than anyone else for a period there. <clears throat> and that was one of the things that attracted me to the music that Al Jurgensen and Paul Barker were doing at the time. It was always louder and uglier and smarter than everything else that was going on at the time. It was always more distorted. And it didn't seem like they were like, ha, see, we're louder. But it was just, they were like scientists creating something in a library. They were very studious about it. And uh, whatever it took, whatever equipment they had to break or build or burn to get the sound they were looking for, they'd do it. And they didn't really give it damn about what anyone thought the record company or anything they just went ahead and do it and became very successful at it so it was a great lesson in yes you should be uncompromising don't and you know i i i I annoy myself because i think i've like perhaps pandered in the past but then i think about these guys and like they never pandered never and they made the records they wanted to make and that was that they weren't going to do it otherwise so it was a good it was a good lesson yes absolutely because at that time i remember you know one of the the most memorable gigs i went to see was the butthole surface which was kind of obviously quite a an occasion when you see them for the first time and no there was another band i did see sonic youth who were amazing but the band that i missed was i suppose there was two there was big black and there's also the swans as well who were also oh, doing boy. kind of yeah. extreme things and obviously they they were sort of American bands did you sort of you know because that's that thing you know that I've often heard when people mention from the UK you know we toured America and then we came back and split up or it kind of destroyed us so you having that other experience of actually relocating to America and then thinking okay this is what it's like did you have to change at all you know did you think god I can't be that person back in Scotland this is a different league or this is a different way of being and and this is what you have to do to survive and be part of it Oh, uh, no, uh-uh, no, people, people accepted me for what I was, and uh, that's what they, that, that is what they wanted, um, you know, um, and I never had to <coughs> really change anything. Um, I've always found it very easy to, um, you know, <laughs> meet collaborators where I live. That's one of the brilliant things about Chicago, I'll tell you, is that, and especially having lived here for so long now, I know everybody involved in music, and I know if I want to collaborate with any of these people, all I have to do is pick up the phone um, or 
send them a message and say, hey, do you want to do something? Or I'm doing this, do you want to do it? Um, so, no, I've never, I don't feel, I mean, of course, people change and everything like that. Um, I'm not the 22-year-old or whatever I was when I came here. I'm not that person anymore, <clears throat> for the most part. Um, but there's certain things that uh, I think are exactly the same. And, you know, I think that the, uh, <clears throat> I think the initial shock of America, I, I, I settled in okay. And uh, it's lucky that I didn't do anything early on, like have a family, you know, because when I say settled, uh, I settled into being unsettled. Um, so I didn't have a family until I was a lot older, and that was a sensible move. Um, and now I am married to another artist, uh, and we have two kids, and uh, we are accepted as being artists who have children. And my kids know what I do, and they know what my wife does, and it's just part of our lives. And I believe that is the third part of my interview with Chris Connelly talking about Chicago, moving to America, the Finney tribe and much, much more. Anyway, I think we should break that up and play some more music. This is going to be a track from The Revolting Cox titled At The Top, which again, another epic.
And there you go, another epic. That is the Revolting Cox with the track titled At the Top. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. This is the fourth part of my interview with Chris, where I was talking about his latest project, which does have a David Bowie theme. And this was the response from Chris. Chris, take it away. Yeah, well, I started it with my friend Matt Walker. Matt uh, is who I'm actually going to visit later on today. Uh, he lives here. I've known him for many, many years. His brother used to play bass in my band. And he and I, I recorded some vocals for him, you know, five or six years ago, maybe more. And it was on a song he'd written. And after it, I said, you know, this puts me in mind of a, of some of the, of Bowie's material from the 80s. And I said, you know, he's retired. <clears throat> it's a real shame that that music is not being played live because at the time it was before the next day came out and he disappeared from public life. And uh, I asked him, Matt, I said, you know, do you want to play some David Bowie songs? And so we put a band together. Matt plays with um, Morrissey. So he's on the road or recording quite a lot, a lot. Um, so when he is in Chicago, we usually plan some shows and uh, there are nine of us in the band and um, we take our job really seriously, really seriously. And uh, the last thing we did was we did the album Scary Monsters, which was uh, for me an incredible challenge for the voice, but I did it and uh, I did it well. Um, doing Bowie music is not easy. Uh, it's, it's, it's very hard. So we've done several of his records and we put on a very good show. Uh, we have a lot of costume changes and visuals and things like that. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a wonderful, uh, learning experience for sure. Yes. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, playing, I mean, that whole subject is kind of interesting. Yeah, because because about a couple of years ago, No L Slick put together a bit of a band to, to come and tour with yeah. Station to Station. And and I did go and see that, and it, and it wasn't kind of exactly what I wanted. Now I've seen just one tribute band, and I have to say I had to leave in the interval. But then I did see a woman called Camille O'Sullivan, who did some... So she's a sort of Irish singer, and she did some work of um, both... Nick Cave, yeah, uh, David Bowie, and and a few other artists as well, Leonard Cohen, and she had reinterpreted the songs, and she did such an amazing job. It was such an incredible evening, and I think that that's kind of, the you know, if you're going to do other people's work, you really have to give it something special, don't you? And that, even though you know, obviously Earl Slick had been with Bowie for decades, it it just didn't feel, you know, it was like this really strange bunch of you know musicians from different bands like Spandau Bally the guy you know I think his name you know he was the saxophone player and and it was kind of just like a load of chaps on stage kind of belting out these right. songs but they didn't have that kind of soul and and that spirit that you really wanted as a fan to sort of experience and um so that must be quite a challenge as well for you to sort of do justice to sort of other people's work well you know it, it it is, but I have found a way in, and I can't do it. I couldn't like. I'm not an actor. Um, I couldn't like drop everything now and do it. For me, 
the key was to understand that David Jones was becoming David Bowie. So I have to second guess David Jones and the character he is in at the time. That was my, that's what I tell myself. And I think of uh, the film Velvet Goldmine, for example, where Todd Haynes said, well, I know nothing about this story, but this is my version of what I'd like it to have been. So I have my version of David Jones in my mind. And um, I work very hard and I watch videos. I see how he moves and I have studied him quite hard for 45 years now. And, you know, the, the sort of, uh, I guess the sort of vindicate, uh, vindication I get is, you know, I've had people, we did a show after he died. We were actually, uh, it was maybe two months after he died, but my band was actually, we were actually rehearsing the day he did die, which has always been a special memory for me, a special thought that maybe we were playing his music when he died. And in March of that year, we'd already booked the gig. We were doing station to station, and which was the hardest of all. And people were really sobbing, really sobbing, really crying hard. And a lot of people said it was cathartic. It was the first time after he died that they felt a release. And uh, it was a very emotional evening. We had his old girlfriend, Ava Cherry, played with us, um, you know, who was with him during the Young Americans station to station period. Um, so to me, it's kind of like a very basic sort of acting lesson. And you have to try and feel what he is trying to feel through his character that he's created. So it's kind of mind blowing in a way, but I love doing it so much. And when I'm on, it's actually my favorite thing to do. It's like, oh, I can leave my entire life behind and be someone else for two hours. This is fun. So it's fun, yes. right? It's hard work, but it is a lot of fun. Yes. And did you? And 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 for me, that moment in Station Station, the song, when you know that that sort of the rhythm changes midway through because it's a long song. It's about ten minutes, isn't it? When he sing comes in with that with that fantastic line, it's not the side effects of the cocaine, and that. Yeah. You know, you've got to hit that. Otherwise, it's like, oh, dear. But, you know, did you did you feel when you done it like, oh, yes, we hit it? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, we did it. Um, and I think we had the lights changed all white at that second as well. Yes. Well, it, well actually, you know. just because I did an interview with Woody Woodmansey, um, which was kind of he told me an amazing story that he was playing a gig with Tony Visconti and that band. Um, Holy yeah, Holy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Tony Visconti said, look, I know I've got David's number. Let's and it's his birthday. Let's let's phone him up. You know, they were playing the gig. So let's because there had been a rumor that Bowie was going to turn up. But um, obviously Visconti knew he wouldn't. But he said, look, look, let's phone David and wish him a happy birthday. And they did, you know, and David was on the line. And and they said, you know, and, and David said, oh, thanks a lot. You know, what do they think of the new album, Black Star? And everyone cheered and everything. And the next day he died. And, and Woody Woodmansey was like. God, that was the weird, you know, he woke up and he's like, oh, I've got hundreds of messages on my phone. You know, it couldn't have been that bad a gig. And it's like, David, you know, so like that night, you know, that he's, you know, those kind of close friends of him, Woody Woodmansey and Tony Visconti, you know, had been playing and, and phoned him, you know, and wished him a happy birthday. I think that really 
blew my mind actually it still does yeah. you know it's like yeah talk about timing but anyway yeah. look talking of excited things, just briefly because i've been on the phone long you know you've obviously been releasing you know you've got your new album out bloodhounds which you must be really yeah. really really pleased with still sort of being able to sort of craft such an amazing album so do you are you still sort of feeling like god the best is still to come or do you just feel like this is this is just part of the journey and i'm still gonna kind of keep on rolling with it i you know i have to keep moving forward and uh i i i love when i'm making records it's it's when i'm happiest and then when it's done i i get really depressed for about two days and i'm like well what next and I have another I, I, I since Bloodhounds I've recorded another album which will be out in November and um, you know I, I have commitments to ministry and I've been doing uh, collaborations with people which have been really nice like where I've just been singing and uh, writing lyrics for people I've been working with a guy called John Fryer who um, is a producer um, he engineered and produced a bunch of records for wire depeche mode and um some wire offshoots and you know i've been doing that and it's a nice outlet because when you meet someone who's doing something musically that's not necessarily different to you but well i couldn't have come up with that music you find it brings out different words and you you find it pushes you in a different way so i'm always just looking for where i'm going to be pushed next you know, I don't sort of like sit down with my guitar and say, oh, I've got to make a song, got to write a song. I just like, you know, when it comes, it comes. Yes. I'll be looking at, a, looking at a painting one day or I'll be talking to someone. And I'll be like, oh, I know. Let's go and do this. <laughs> and that's always how it happens. So I never worry that it's not going to happen. I never push it. But it will happen. And, you know, I'm excited that I can keep doing this for a really long period of time for the rest of my life. I'm going to go and see Mott the Hoople next week. He's 79. <laughs> and that, that gives me, you know, a lot of uh, hope. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, I know, you know, it's always sad, you know, and, and I think in a way I kind of take stock that God, I've also been incredibly lucky to have been here when so many of these amazing artists you know in the world of rock and pop have been on this earth at the same time you know you just have to think god that was that was kind of lucky and but at the same time you know a lot of those kind of people are still playing you know i i still think the fleetwood mac story just kind of blows my mind you know they keep on rocking you think they must be well in their 70s and you know yet they're still got that you know we're still gonna kick out the lead guitarist and we're going to go on tour you know and it's like oh dear he's just had a heart attack we better send him a car to get well car but you know it it is incredible that you know that the world of music keeps people going because somebody mentioned about keith richard saying you know it's when he's on stage he just seems to be at his happiest and you think yeah you know, and you just think yeah that is probably true and, and probably with you know like david bowie because because that time when he was kind of just disappeared it was kind of odd because it was like well normally he's releasing an album and yeah and then it wasn't you know he wasn't there doing yeah. any interviews or he wasn't there releasing something that could be yeah. interesting or difficult difficult but obviously suddenly the next day came out and you thought oh yes he is still he you know he was still sort of thinking yes i must try and get that back out there and then black star obviously as well so it is it is one of those creative things that people can't let go and that probably kind of do you feel emotionally that's where you're a sort of 
your purpose, so to speak, is is kind of why you're here. Well, yes, you know, here, me and you, right? Okay, so we grew up in an era where, you know, I remember when in the music papers, people would laugh at Mark Bowling, say, oh, he's 30, he's past it, you know? That was pop music. You're past it. Your parents would say, well, that's fine for a couple of years, but you're, you're 25 now, you're no spring chicken. This is an art form like any other art form, right? Whether you're William Boyd, Martin Amos, or, you know, or if you're Francis Bacon or Lucian Freud, why, why would you stop? The thing that, the only thing that scares me about stopping is that I might not be able to do it, right? I might get Alzheimer's disease or something like that. And I might not be able to use my hands with arthritis. I'm really, really healthy, but that might happen one day. And that's the only thing that would stop me. It's not a young person's game anymore. It just isn't. It's an art form as valid as filmmaking or, or uh, writing novels or painting. And um, the, one of the sad things is that, you know, certainly in American society, people like me are not looked after when we're old, <laughs> okay? We're like the bottom of the barrel in, in, in many respects. But, uh, you know, you find a way. But what would you kind of say to your 18-year-old self, you know, if if starting out in music? Now, obviously, some people go, do you mean my 18 back then or 18? But just kind of roughly, you know, the, the kind of the key, some of the key things you think, oh, God, that, that's something that I didn't know. But now I do know. Really good idea. Uh, uh, listen to who you're playing with, um, I think, is the most important thing I've learned and learn to use your communication skills. Don't let ego get in the way and, um, you know, appreciate everything that your colleagues are doing with you (laughs) and don't take any shit from anyone either. And, um, I think, I think these are things that I've learned now, and I think that I'm uh, better, better at doing it now than I was then. Yes. But we were, all, we were all young then, so. It happens. And just kind of lastly, I mean, you must have been really, I mean, I know now it's a long time ago, but at the time you probably thought, oh, this is a good time. When you did that, you know, a compilation of your outtakes and, and personal favourites, you know, from the early couple of decades, that must yeah. have been when you put those those tracks together and from different different worlds and different bands, that must have felt like a really nice process. It was, yeah. Uh, it, it was. I mean, sometimes I think I spread myself a bit too thin, but I've stopped sort of questioning that for me, uh, and I think that I pick and choose the projects I do now, but it was a really gratifying process. Um, I was, I, I was proud of what I'd done. And, um, also it sort of marked a period of time where I could move forward and maybe try something new, you know, 
Yes, absolutely. Well, sometimes you need these things as well. And obviously, you know, just uh, just just the last last because you did mention him. I mean, one of the people that I absolutely adored during the eighties was the Smiths, and you know, from those five years, from eighty three to eighty seven. Obviously, you know, people as they sort of continue in their life, you kind of go, oh, that that that's kind of worked well, or they seem to have survived. And then other people, you think, a bit more tricky, you know. And and so obviously. Having known the bass player of Morrissey, do you do you often think, God, he's not quite the person? You know, I was obsessed with the Smiths and thought Morrissey was amazing. So it's kind of quite interesting as a fan, kind of going, hmm, not quite sure how to sort of deal with this now. But you know, you have to. So that's life, and there's worse things. But you know, do, how do you sort of feel? See, you must have also seen a few people who have changed or few casualties along that way? Because you seem very coherent and very on the game still. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, there there have been people who've dropped out. But, you know, I mean, some people aren't meant to do this forever. You know, they're not. Um, and sometimes, I mean, look, there's some, there are some works of art that that is that is it. There will not be a repetition. I mean, I'm thinking... Uh, for example, in music, I'm thinking of these <clears throat> two amazing Talk Talk records that shimmer above everything else, or I'm thinking of Loveless by My Bloody Valentine. Sometimes it's okay to have one incredible masterpiece, um, you know, and then for the most part, these people did sort of call it quits, although My Bloody Valentine did follow up with, a, with an album 25 years later or something like that. But, um, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's art and it doesn't belong, <sighs> how do you say this? We can't tell, it's, it's not on any kind of calendar, right? It's not on any kind of schedule. It happens when it happens and then it doesn't happen. And if you get that magic moment a few times in your life, then that's just amazing. And if you don't, you might be flogging a dead horse. You know, I always admired Scott Walker for not making records when he didn't want to make records, when he didn't feel it was time. And then he'd come back and make a record when he was ready, you know. Uh, and they were good. And they were substantive. Um, and he didn't churn out, like, four Walker Brothers greatest hits versions in, in the late 80s just because it would make him money he just was poor <laughs> and yes. i admire that you know and that is going to be the last part of the interview that i did with chris Connelly. a huge thank you to chris for giving me the time for that and the fact that we coordinated it it was fantastic so big shout out there um and also thank you for listening this has been david Eastall, the c86 show um I've given you my contact details. I won't repeat them. Otherwise, it just sounds rather desperate. But I'll leave you with another track that um, Chris appeared on. This is Black Needle Noise, and this is I'll Give You Shape. Have a great week. Search like never
Stop. 